we had a dinner party, and late into the night, when the alcohol had been taken, the dancers said, who are you casting? And I said, well, I don't know. It could be a man, it could be a woman, we're just writing the audition notice. No, that has to be played by a trans person. And I was well aware of what was going on. Very quickly became aware that I was being ostracised from my own company. And then you have the leaders at the top. And I think they come from the same, probably a little bit older generation than me. They had a great time. They probably feel a bit guilty. They probably did a few things they wouldn't want remembered or they don't want to become a hashtagged <laughs> name. <laughs> you know? And so they're going to keep quiet, look towards their pension, look towards hopefully an OBE and just try and keep their organisation afloat before they move on. So I didn't expect to be cancelled in my own home. I didn't. I knew nothing about intellectual property. I know everything now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, I made it. It's mine. Mm -mm -mm -mm. No, no, it's more complicated than that. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our fantastic guest today is a dancer who was forced out of her own dance company for having, as usual, the wrong opinions. Rosie <laughs> Kay, welcome to Trigonometry. Hello, thank you very much for having me. It's really nice to be here. It's really great to have you on the show. Uh, tell us who are you? What has been your journey through life? Uh, my name is Rosie Kay. Um, I trained from the age of three to be a dancer. I never thought that I could do it as a job. Um, it just seemed something so far away and spectacular. And I was lucky enough to see some very good dance when I was young and growing up. I saw Nureyev live. I saw the German choreographer Pina Bausch live when I was a teenager. And um, I got into dance school. Uh, amazingly, I, I got into uh, London Contemporary Dance School. Still thought... I don't think I can do this as a career. Mm. Performed, toured the world for five or six years and then realised that I wanted to be a choreographer. I wanted to make not just the dance, not just the movements, but the stories. And um, I was always very inspired by quite political female choreographers, people like Martha Graham mm. um, or Mary Vigman, sort of amazing women that made work about the world that they live in. And so I set up my own eponymous company in 2004 in Birmingham. And I've spent the past sort of 20 years building up from very small solo mm. duet trio work mm. into large scale, the biggest theatres and up until 2021 was touring the world with my dance productions. Yeah. And then what happened? And then what happened? <laughs> uh, I was 10 days away from a big premiere of Romeo and Juliet, which mm -hmm. I'd been spending five years researching, working with gangs, gang members, schools in Birmingham, community groups and uh, different artists. I'd put together a contemporary Birmingham-based version of Romeo and Juliet, and it had got put back and put back and put back because of covid and I really wanted to still work and have a show ready and give people jobs because it was a nightmare for mm. artists through COVID. It just stopped. So I'd managed to get through auditions and rehearsals. We were 10 days away from the premiere. And there was just this very strange vibe in the company. Very young dancers. Some of them had never performed professionally yet mm. because they were straight out of college. They hadn't had graduation shows. So I invited them to my house. We had a dinner party. And late into the night... When the alcohol had been taken, 
um, I was asked what my next show was. Mm. And I was well in, on the way to preparing a production of Romeo and Ju- uh, of Orlando, mm-hmm. which is a Virginia Woolf novel about... There's an eponymous... There's an amazing hero who turns from a man into a woman. It just happens. Virginia Woolf writes about it very wittily. But also she does 400 years of history and she changes style all the way through. So it's a really clever, funny book. Anyway, the dancers said, who are you casting? And I said, well, I don't know. Could be a man, could be a woman. We're just writing the audition notice. No, that has to be played by a trans person. And I was well aware of what was going on. I was watching it from a kind of outsider, but from a female perspective, as a woman in the arts going, hmm, I can see what some of the dangerous implications are to this movement if we redefine what women are. It could pull women's rights back and it could pull back the advancements we've made. Um, so I just pushed back a bit and then really quickly it turned into an argument and I was making those points around women's safety, women's dignity and then also around children and um, how children were being pushed down an affirmation model. And I don't need to explain all this to you because you have amazing guests that explain all this. Um, it was met with utter hostility. I went back to work. I felt a sort of wall of woke hate. Mm. It was a really vulnerable position when you've got a premiere coming up and your company has turned against you. I asked... How do, sorry, how do, so you have this argument with these people who you're, you're trying to give jobs to. Yeah. And then how, how, how does that become a wall of hate that you feel? So we'll go back into the studio on the Monday and with these same people, with these same right, people, okay. mm. these same people, and I could just feel the the temperature. Yes, and I was really scared, and I thought, you know, the production could fall apart. Mm. So, and I, I and I felt really shocked and really scared. I'd kind of opened myself up, and I'd revealed things about like the near death of my baby and myself through childbirth, mm. and you know, tried to sort of say, listen, you know. As a, as a woman who is older than you, these are experiences that only a woman could go through. And here they are, you know, please mm. take them to understand how, how much this, like, how important the body is. We mm-hmm. cannot, I feel as a dancer, as an artist, you can't deny that we have bodies. This is important. Anyway, I felt this wall. So I asked um, the chair of the board, who was a friend who I'd worked with, who I trusted, if she would help intervene to just calm it down. I think really the approach should have been, you're all adults. It was two in the morning. Mm. You were talking about something contentious. You're allowed to have different opinions. Mm -hmm. That's it. Get on with the work. Instead, something happened. I don't know what happened. But I very quickly became aware that I was being ostracised from my own company. I went through one investigation, which I wholeheartedly cooperated with. I was exonerated. What were you being investigated for? I couldn't quite understand. I couldn't kind of, I couldn't get them to define whether there was something around inappropriateness, but there was something about the fact that they were so offended. And I kept saying, well, you do realise that the very definition of what they're offended about, transphobia, mm. is, is the fact that I have defined women and men as being biologically real. Like that, that's, that, that's the issue we have here. They're going to get more and more offended, but the fact is there is a, there is, there's a problem here. And that's fine. We just need to move on. Um, so I was investigated. Um, I, I did make an apology. That wasn't enough for one dancer. They walked out and appealed. And so then it went into a really dark second investigation. 
and by mistake they forwarded me a lawyer's email so I could see that they were spending a lot of money on outside lawyers to investigate me again. Who's they? The board. The board. Mm. Rose, I know this is probably a really stupid question, but I, neither I or a lot of our audience may understand this. If it's your own company, how are these people in charge of investigating you? Absolutely. I should have said that. So um, I set it up. I was the director of it. It was a limited by share company. Mm-hmm. Around 2017, I stood down as director and I turned it into a charity mm-hmm. in order to get the bigger funding. Right. Yeah. And we were, we became a regularly funded Arts Council organisation. But under English charity law, because it had my name and it was my work, I could not be a director. So also I just had a baby and I'd never had a salary, holiday pay, pension. Mm-hmm. So I was like, do you know what? I'd quite like to try being an employee for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Quite quickly I realised I didn't like it because I like <laughs> <laughs> I like being the boss and and it doesn't matter if it's got your name on it and it's all your work and all the money coming in is through you but if you let go of that power this is what happens and I and I should have I should have realized that I thought well hey let's do this compromise in order to get that funding in order to get the company to that big level Mm -hmm. I'll take that sacrifice inside Mm -hmm. because it's going to get me where I want it to go Mm But that was a mistake. Mm-hmm. So second investigation. Second investigation. I see that they're lying. They're spending vast amounts of money that I had earned for the company. Um, they're acting in my view and in legal opinion untoward to the law. Can I put it that way? Um, even like little, th- well, not little things, but I asked for this investigation to be paused because a very close family member had an emergency operation. They refused to pause they were acting in such a way that I knew that I would never be able to trust them again or work mm-hmm. with them again. And so I resigned citing constructive dismissal and discrimination. I was building a case to sue them. I would have sued them, but they folded the company. And then despite there being a really decent amount of money in reserves when I left, it went into uh, insolvency. Wow. So that puts it into a completely different legal thing. Mm. Um, I've been fighting over the past year. I've bought out the entire assets of that former company, including my name. So I now own that. But again, that was another legal fight that I had to do behind the scenes. Isn't it amazing that all this happened over, let's be honest, basically a heated discussion over a few bottles of wine? Yes, it, it is. It, it's really shocking. And, and there's kind of like a few theories about like why, because on the one hand you have the activists who are young and I think have been indoctrinated. I don't think they're very nice. They certainly don't have empathy, but I also think they're probably victims of this. And then you have this kind of capitulation and cowardice of a board. Now they're called trustees mm. for a reason in that you should trust them. Now, the interesting thing I think is actually the artist who this is all meant to serve is actually in the most vulnerable position because you're the one making all the problems. You're the one that's still trying to do your job. It was written into the charitable objects that Rosie Kay tackles controversial and taboo subjects, shining a light on things that are unspoken or unsaid. Mm. That was my job. So, of course, if there's something controversial going on, I'm right there in it going, what's, you know, what's Mm. going on? Tell me, you're young. What's what's mm. what's your opinion? Well, I don't agree with that, but this is what I think, and and, and I'm used to that back and forth. You should be able to debate these things. 
I felt. And do you think this is a culture? Because we talk a lot about the culture in universities, but we don't tend to talk about it in the culture in drama schools, in dance schools. Are they? Is that very much a culture within those types of institutions? Well, I, I hadn't realised quite so much at the time, but yes, it is. Yes, yes. And, I, I, and I've heard from insiders that they're quite hostile environments if you don't agree with this. Yeah, yeah. Really? Because yeah. when I, like, I went to drama school and it, it was tough. It was a tough environment. And actually, people didn't really care about your feelings at all. So it kind of surprises me that it's gone completely the other way. Yes. And I mean, I've got a few theories about why that happened. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure so much about, I mean, there's definitely, that's the pipeline feeding in. Mm. Um, I think things dramatically changed when it started. Um, I, I got a grant to go to dance school, which was just incredible. Um, once people started having to pay for fees, mm. um, that, that immediately changed the demographic of who was going to go into those professions mm -hmm. and live with that level of debt when you have a very, very poor work situation to earn money, very poor. Um, and so it, a lot of the grassroots of, of drama, of music, of dance, the grassroots in local communities, that stopped as well. So the pipeline into the conservatoires has dried up. Mm. So the people that are going there are going to be actually, let's say they're of a certain class and yep. wealth and privilege to even be there in the first place. So I think it kind of feeds into that whole luxury belief system. And the problem then comes because you talk about what you do and immediately I listened to, to what you said about what your dance company did and I actually really enjoy dance. I'm thinking, oh, that's what I'm interested in. That's what I love. I love theatre. I want to see taboos challenged. I want to see interesting work. What does it mean for the arts and culture and society as a whole if we can't even have these conversations or these discussions, particularly in the arts? Gosh, well, I mean, I'm still thinking about like, 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 how did this happen? Mm. How, how did these activists get in and sort of pollute and poison and change the entire environment that means that actually speaking out is such a dangerous mm. thing to do? And that, that's so serious. I remember like um, in 2021, I, I put together a series of talks with uh, military people, academics and artists and there was a guy from the Secret Service. Mm. And I was asking him, like, like, why do they pick on the artists? You know, it's either political activists that get sort of the knock and the night or it's artists. And he said, well, absolutely. You, you lot are the difficult ones. You, you, you should be out there asking questions, challenging society, tend to be very independent thinkers. Um, he said, we're, we're used to watching this in Secret Service uh, kind of organisations. We see it happening in, you know, normally countries with already authoritarian regimes and it comes from the top mm. down we're just not used to seeing it in the west and we're not used to seeing it coming what it feels like it's bottom up but i think it's so long term that that it's kind of all crunched around us all at once mm. Mm. and do you feel do you feel a chilling effect is is this what people are talking about in the world of dance so they feel that they can't talk about a particular issue or if they can talk about it you can only talk about it in a certain way I think what's happened is, is, is it's quite complicated. I think you have the, the activists coming in who probably don't have skills. So we've, we've sort of recently heard that they're coming out of drama school, unable to do Shakespeare. I'd say they're coming out of dance school, what I would say noodling. They're noodling around. There isn't... S sorry, they're coming out of drama school, unable to do Shakespeare. Yeah, I think there was an article in the Times this week about actors going to the Globe and unable to 
speak or learn or get their minds and mouths around Shakespeare. And wow, that that's okay. the science. So, so, so we're de-skilling that mm. workforce. Mm. And through that skill, now th- it's really important because people go, oh, who cares about Shakespeare, whatever. But unless you have that really deep rigour mm. and discipline and practice, like daily practice, you don't have anything to build on, then you really are into arty-farty territory. So with dance, it's like the rigour of ballet, the rigour of technique. With acting, it's the, it's the voice, it's the language, it's the, the, the meaning of those plays. You need that depth mm. to then be able to turn that to everything else. If it's just surface level, then what are we left with? We're left with their identities. And they're coming to the workplace where their identities are the most important thing, not the art. So you have that... Also, they can they can make their name. Young people without the discipline, the stamina, the resilience can make their names by creating a huge hoo-ha, by making a mass level complaint, getting their names out there. You then have um, a system of management or administrative kind of like control. Uh, we have now such like huge controls on funding that's created an entirely new class of arts bureaucrats. I'd call them the poisoned administrators, (laughs) often um, frustrated artists themselves, but very clearly saw that if they want a salary, a position and power, that's where they need to go. And then they kind of astroturf the whole thing. So they create the programmes, you apply funding criteria that that fits that programme, they put the festivals on. So they become the power brokers within this world. And then you have the leaders at the top. And I think they come from the same, probably a little bit older generation than me, They had a great time. They probably feel a bit guilty. They probably did a few things they wouldn't want remembered or they don't want to become a hashtag. (laughs) (laughs) And so they're going to keep quiet, Mm. look towards their pension, look towards hopefully an OBE and just try and keep their organisation afloat before they move on. Mm. And there aren't the people in leadership positions that are justifying their salaries. Mm. They're Mm. not standing up for the arts. They're being bullied by the activists, by the Twitter attackers, and sometimes by their own staff. So what you're really talking about is it's the culture eating itself because at the very core of this, people always, when I'm said I want to be an actor, acting trainer, why do you need three years? It's, I always said to them, there is a reason why British actors are the best actors in the world. Yeah. It's because of the rigorous training that we receive in this country in Shakespeare, learning how to perform, learning to, tr- learning to train your body, to train your voice. Yeah. If we don't have that, we literally have nothing. Well, it, and it, it, it's really, it's just really weird in the studio when you're trying to make a work. And I've put together something called the, the Charter of Creation mm. that's asking people if they're going to work with me to sign to say that we're free to speak, we're free to disagree that the most important thing is the art form. And in the art form, we should be looking at the depths and heights of humanity, and we should be free to do that. And also, I think you're only ever going to be really challenging these ideas. If, if you feel free, you can play, you can make mistakes, you can argue. And really, I'd, I'd, I'd much prefer if people left their identities at the door. You know, it used to be sort of leave your problems at the door. Now you've got to leave your performative self at the door in order to make art. And I, I just find it astonishing that that needs to be said. But I just, I don't think there's been a really good argument about what, what the purpose of the arts are for and why they're so important for humanity, for culture, for civilization, for society. But they are, they're vitally important. And when they're dead and gone, it's going to be dark, very dark. 
Hey, Constantine, do you like being healthy? Of course, in my country we judge man's health by his ability to wrestle bear. Turns out in London wrestle bear has very different meaning. We've all had a night that's got out of hand. We will speak no more of this. This secret will be buried with my ancestors. Well, if you want to stay healthy and not feel like you need to be buried with Constantine's ancestors, then you need to try AG1. AG1 is simple and easy way to get all nutrients you need. Each serving contains 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients. One scoop and you feel like a real man. We used it on our America tour where we were constantly on the move, living out of a bag and working every day. AG1 meant we felt great, looked great, and we avoided getting sick. One scoop a day meant we knew we had all the vitamins and minerals needed for the day. We had hugely successful trip. It is very economical and I felt strong enough to wrestle American bear, which we all know is grotesquely weak compared to great Russian bear. If you're looking for a simpler and cost-effective supplement routine, AG1 is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash trigonometry. That's athleticgreens.com slash trigonometry. Check it out and become real men like me. It's interesting the point you made. I mean, obviously, you know, you've got the people at the top, as you say, who want to die before they get hashtagged. And then, you know, they, they want to be hashtagged. I think I include myself in that, mate. I'm well, going to be honest well, with you. They want to be hashtagged posthumously. But, but it's the, the bit in the middle, which I think actually you're spot on about, because someone sent me a Mark Twain quote, and I'm going to butcher it, but it was something like, when you can't compete on merit, you start competing on victimhood. And identity has become this overwhelming wedge that people have clung to in order to advance careers, in order to get attention, in order to be quote-unquote successful. And it seems to me, based on what you're saying and what I've been thinking about, that, that is a fu- there's a fundamental contradiction between the focus on identity and creativity. Yes. Uh, I, I think, interestingly, maybe it's through the sort of Instagram generation, but that you yourself have become the product mm. and you are selling your you are selling yourself in multiple mm-hmm. ways so at first that was a kind of love islandy type vibe and we all kind of went oh the hell crass <laughs> um but that then flipped into that identitarian victimhood so actually like who you are and what you're coming with and how you label those those victim status sort of markers those are the most important things so so you're selling you're selling mm. your victimhood it isn't just victimhood it's, you're selling that as a product actually uh, and it sort of goes against my sense of 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 having to work so thoroughly and solidly through the self that you then become a vehicle for the art mm. you mm. you can do you can do anything you might you might be better at some things than others, but I wouldn't turn down what a role asks of me or what a choreographer would ask of me, and I would do the same and, and I do the same in my own work to myself and then ask that of others that we all hit sounds a bit silly, but we're all here to serve mm. the purpose of the art. The other thing that comes with this identity stuff is this full judgment value system. So even at twenty three, if you have these protected characteristics that are are not legal by the way some of these are made up they can then come in and judge for example me 
And all I've got is is white middle aged women. You know, it's like kind of lowest of the low now. I think. <laughs> no, there's the straight white man, the apex predator. Oh yeah, but you system. don't get called Karens. You know, like yeah, yeah. that's. Like, I'm, I'm not even white particularly, but it's Francis we're looking at. <laughs> yeah, so you, the, yeah gammon, right. the, gammon. the gammon. But that's it. We all come up with you know, I'm Polish heritage. You know, it's all yeah. you, and you're like, I'm not going into. It's too crass to go yeah. into yeah. that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, I know who I am. I've made one autobiographical work that I made through lockdown because I could only work with myself for, for, mm-hmm. for a whole year, which was fabulous. But that's it. I put it on stage and you can see it. So, so they come with this judgment, this judgment to like, oh, you know, you're the boss, you're the director, you're the choreographer. And of course, you, you, you then have the weight of oppression because you're actually asking these people to do a job, you know, for money. And they're judging the work that they're making in the studio at the same time. And so there's this, it's not, it's not just your own internal sense of self-censorship. You're being judged in the studio. And I think that's, that's, that's lousy. Mm. And it totally takes away who the audience is. And I feel like you should make your art put 100% into it and let the audience decide. Let the public decide. Let the critics decide if it's good or bad. You just have to put the most into making it as good as you can make it. Yeah, and it's like, you know, when I was reading about... Um like the Globe did this version of Joan of Arc and she's non-binary. And I just, I'm going to swear, it's like, why don't you just fucking tell the story of Joan of Arc? I think that's interesting enough, instead of making her non-binary. But this is, it. it's, it's like the whole thing feeds itself because you've got this like powerful kind of bureaucratic mm. people that are putting the criteria on. I don't think you can blame the artists for trying to fulfil that criteria. Yes. yeah. To get the money, yes, and, and, and it is—it's a sort of a self-fulfilling, perpetuating circle. And then I've heard recently that they're sort of speaking out and saying, "Oh, but we're so worried that these poor actors are getting attacked by all these awful people making criticism of this production." It's like, well, we're not criticizing. Well, a, it didn't look very good, but we're criticizing it because you're sort of transing a female incredible heroine Mm. and some of us object to that that there are so few women of stature and fame across the centuries that some of us feel a bit objectionable to the fact that now they're no longer female or no longer identify as a woman or is this something that i often ask people Mm. particularly women that we have on the show to talk about this because I, i do see a bit of a tension there between on the one hand, rejecting identity, but on the other hand, you talked about how you were inspired by strong female choreographers mm. and so on. Is it possible that this is kind of that same mindset going out of control, or do you see them as different? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I, I remember like um, writing a proposal for for a piece I wanted to do, which was about looking at my own Polish identity and following that through. So I. I mean, literally, I think till about five minutes ago, I was, I probably would have been woke, (laughs) (laughs) to be honest. Getting cancelled will do that to you. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, I was at the liberal left. I I mean, it's always these things that you see that, that kind of nugget of truth around like racism or Mm -hmm. sexism. And, and, and you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, hang on. Where is this going? Mm, Hang on. No. But that's 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 the kind of cleverness of it, of it, or the the the, the griftiness of it that, that that has pushed it to this place where you're no longer able to say, whoa, whoa, whoa stop, that's enough, that's enough now. I think we've lost focus. So I, I, I think that's what that's that's why the arts 
what that's why there's so few artists have spoken out about it. I think they've kind of been pushed down through this this kind of sausage factory with it. Mm. And you mentioned uh, before we started, actually, we were talking about J.K. Rowling. Mm. Uh, and uh, you mentioned that at one point you tweeted, uh, she tweeted something and you replied, say, agreeing with her. It was a fascinating story about how people think about these things. Well, um, so I decided that I was like, OK, identity politics, let's go for it. I'll make this solo. I'll, 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 but I'll, I'll, I'll do it my way and I'll, I'll say all these things, these fun things about myself as well as the kind of tough things that have happened to me. And I was really, it sort of brought a lot of stuff up about my own personal history. And then J.K. Rowling wrote that incredible letter. And it said so much of like what, what I've been feeling and thinking mm. about and working on on my own in the studio about like where we're coming from as women and Sometimes it's only when you're older that you're able to articulate actually like what it's like being a woman growing up in the world from from teenage years or childhood, actually. What is it like? Well, I just remember like being like a very curious, very quiet, dancing child mm -hmm. and just fascinated by the world, completely amazed. And then there's a point that happens around the age of 12 where suddenly you stop being an agent in the world and suddenly you become the object. It happens when like men just start commenting constantly on your appearance mm. when they kind of beep at you. Mm. You're wandering around the world in your school uniform and you're innocent and you suddenly realise it's actually a really scary world. Mm. At which point I also sort of looked up and looked around and realised that all these great artists that I admired, they were all men. All the kind of theatre directors, all the playwrights, most of the choreographers, they were all men. Um, all the statues around me, they're all men. <laughs> the books I was reading, the heroes that I liked were Tintin or cowboy films. They're all men. And if a woman came in, they had like, you know, a fabulous dress on and came in for a minute and then disappeared. They didn't have their own characters. They didn't seem to be real, living, well-rounded human beings. Mm. The women were, were sort of vectors of something else. And so, you, you know, realising that at 12 kind of profoundly influenced me. And, and I, I, I don't think it's, I, it wasn't like, oh, wow, I realised I was a feminist. It was just like, how do I navigate this? Mm. And you go through a difficult time, particularly in your teens, and particularly I found my 20s mm. difficult, being a dancer in tights, your body, you know, I modelled, I didn't like that. I much prefer dancing because you're doing something. Mm. Uh, relationships, um, taking risks, I mean, I've ended up in ridiculous situations, abdu abducted in a taxi, kind of hanging out with mafia in Russia, like being rehypnolled in a bar, like, and survived all of these things. And I would rather have dangerous things happen to me and be free than to never go out there and live life, you mm -hmm. know? And then it's only when, you know, I'm more settled, more secure, especially having a child, you look back and go, bloody hell, that was like a warfare out there. Mm. Thank God I lived, you mm -hmm. know. I'm so glad my parents didn't know what I was up to. <laughs> and, and, and you want to say to younger women, I know you think this way now, but this is, this is what older women have to tell you. You know, read some Jermaine Greer. Mm -hmm. You might not like all of it, but you need, to, you need to be aware life is long and women's lives are long. Rosie, do you think that's part of the problem as well with the arts? If you look at... You know, there's, it's been blown up recently with Romeo and Juliet, Zeffirelli, where the actors complained of Zeffirelli's behaviour. And obviously he's no longer around to answer those charges. You look at one of the greatest cinema, cinematic directors of all time, Roman Polanski, with the, 
awful, awful rape case and that he has never faced justice for it. Was there, was there a culture and an attitude in the arts and a predatory, especially from men being predatory towards women? Yes. Yes, there was. And like going back to what I was saying earlier, there's, a, there's sort of this element of truth to some of this stuff. Yes, I think certain people abuse their positions of power. Um, you learn quite quickly. Other women, older women would support you, give you a nod, just watch out for this person. Yeah. There were certainly people that took advantage um, Dance is full of young, beautiful, new people. You know, it, it does attract a certain rich or person or person of power is attracted to that. And you have to, na- you, you used to have to navigate your way through it. I swore to myself I would not continue that. The kind of buck stops here. Mm-hmm. And I would say most people in my generation, you know, even my teaching would be quite harsh, almost abusive, I'd say. And it's like, well, I don't, I don't ever want to just carry that on mm-hmm. want to sort of treat people really well and then here we are i'm the big baddie <laughs> well y- you know what there is a troll in me or maybe not a troll or a contrarian or, or whatever but a part of me is starting to go is that maybe why the kids are like this because we are all so nice uh-huh uh-huh is, uh-huh. is that where... it's like a vulnerability there or a... i mean i mean i just mean that you know you i know what exactly what you're talking about because in my education, there would have been people who who would have been I don't know abusive, but but tough, right? Mm-hmm. And you knew you knew not to fuck about. I mean, when you described to me the scene at your dinner party, I cannot imagine myself as that twenty-year-old and a person who is employing me, giving me a part in a thing, is invited me for a dinner party at their house. I'm 20, they're 40, or for whatever they are, <laughs> right? And I am there going, you know what? I think you're wrong. And in fact, I'm going to come into work t- to work tomorrow and give you the stink eye. Like, I can't imagine doing that. I literally physically cannot imagine. And, you know, Francis used to run a comedy night where I, I was helping him run it as well. And the sort of like the the next generation coming in, the sort of things they would say about like they would be like, I think the night should be like this. Yeah. And you're kind of going, who the fuck are you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I was, but I was so like that when I was young as well. I was such a little rebel, and you know, disagreed with this and disagreed with that. But I still knew just when to shut up sometimes, yeah, right. and 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 to and to work hard. And well, if you want to be on your own, get out on your own and. Figure it out. Earn some stripes, you yeah, know? Yeah. Don't just... Yeah, so so I think we've, we have been overindulgent, and I think there's been certain messages that the kids have been right on up till now around, like, homosexuality or, you know, climate change. And I grew up in that generation mm-hmm. sort of arguing with my parents at the dinner table. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I now it's gone too far, and, and, and there's probably a lot better people than me to sit here and say what's happened to parenting yeah. and to children and to farming out childcare or farming out um, as civic local responsibilities so that we're not, we're not involved in community forums anymore. We're not involved as school governors. You know, the, the, there's, there's a level that we as parents and as adults need to be engaged in all levels of society, not just our careers. Well, I have a terrifying thought for you that I've been thinking about. Is it possible that when you were arguing with your parents around the dinner table, 
you've become that parent now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm asking myself say, that every day. And me, no, me and my husband like have this conversation like almost every day that, that are we just the grumpy ones? I, I certainly think at the beginning there was that element where you're questioning it. You're going, are, are we just really out of touch? But no, I mean, when you look at these big movements that are pushing through the EDI, equalities, diversity, inclusion, the whole kind of white fragility, white privilege. When, when, when you look at the core, like the, the, the idea of white privilege comes from this amazing woman called Peggy McIntosh. And she, she talks about, you know, the invisible backpack of, of, of what she doesn't have to go through because she's white. And it's a brilliant essay. Mm. It's fantastic. And it also comes with this fantastic guide as to how not to alienate people and make people feel defensive. So when like this came up in some sort of EDI thing, and I asked the sort of the, the person running it, had they heard of Peggy McIntosh? No. I said, well, have you heard of like you know, sort of the way that she would bring this in? No. It, it, there's some of these ideas are just being pushed without a level of nuance and debate that I think we should be having. The other aspect is with that point, I think in previous generations, we'd have been in more positions of power. Mm. I think we're kind of quite a little sandwich generation that grew up in the 90s, had good freedoms, worked her way up, expected to get somewhere and get into positions. And when you look at like the National Theatre, I think Peter Hall was like 36 when he got the job of director. It's unthinkable, really, mm-hmm. that you, you know, and so the whole group of us in our 30s and 40s haven't got quite to where we wanted to. Other people have stayed on, I'd say probably, possibly too long. And we're just getting leapfrogged. The younger generation are just coming in above us. Mm. So I think we probably need to, we need to really speak out and take control a little bit, actually. Rosie, why is it that the arts in particular are so, vulner- are so vulnerable to these type of ideologies? Because on the one hand, we're talking about diversity. And on the other hand, like I said, I'm, I've always been passionate about the theatre. Some of my favourite actors were, you know, people in the, you know, in the 60s who came from working class backgrounds. Peter O'Toole, I mean, he actually said he was from the criminal classes, but... There were uh, Albert Finney, Same Michael, thing, mate. yeah, exactly, <laughs> Michael Caine. I am going to get cancelled for, <laughs> yeah, yeah. for that joke. And so you should, <laughs> you know, Michael Caine, <laughs> yeah. Richard Burton, you know, all these, you know, powerhouse British actors, you know, from yeah. working class backgrounds. And you look at the actors now, predominantly, I mean, there's very good people like Damien Lewis went to Eton, a lot of them <laughs> did. So on the one hand, the arts has become ever more the preserve of the wealthy and the upper classes, yet at the same time, it's about diversity. And you're like... Right, so I think you need to sort of trace a little bit like what's happened, particularly... So the funding system in this country is very strong for the arts, Mm. but it's also always, since John Maynard Keynes set it up, it's always had a political edge to it, always. If you go back to the 80s and Thatcherism, the arts were being very lowly funded and they had a kind of... Do you remember instrumentalism? So the arts are being used to solve, like, you know, social woes, quite low level. Mm. But it meant that artists were quite free. They could kind of, like, do what they like. You also could claim dull. So you could be an artist and you could get, like, you know, at least enough to cover your rent and eat. So it it was a more genuinely equal sort of Mm. starting point. And you were left alone. And I think that's probably around the point that the arts became lefty as they saw it as a movement against Thatcher. Um, Out of that grew some really interesting rebellious movements, such as the YBAs and the Sensation uh, 
exhibition. Sorry to interrupt. I know what the YBA is. Just young explain British, to people. Young British artists. So you, Damien Hirst, um, Tracy Means, the kind of really rebellious art stuff. You had the kind of Mark Ravenhill shopping and fucking, the really amazing movement that was going on in British theatre. You, you had these things that had like a punk edge. Mm -hmm. It was rebellious. It also did have quite a capitalistic edge. They wanted to make money. Mm. And that was really kind of quite a clever move. Then you've got Blair coming in. And the whole different thing about Blair and the arts was it was being used for regeneration. So the arts had managed to make the business case. So that like, okay, we go and build a massive art center in Gateshead. Mm. That will then revitalize the area. Um, that'll bring in, and they, and they literally crunched the numbers to say that we can use arts to, to change cities. There was loads of money. It was a great time. There was all these performing arts schools. You get like big fees for workshops. You got the Olympics. You got this big, big, big stuff going on. Yeah, brilliant. I'll do this. I'll do that. I'm making massive works. But slowly, slowly, I also realised that that criteria started to get stronger and stronger, and the artists had less and less say. You were serving quite mm. a big bureaucratic arts business because it was social engineering, really, to some extent, right? So, yeah, so I think now that instrumentalism has kind of gone full circle. Mm -hmm. So we're captured by the business stuff. We have to justify every single penny. I would, if, when I was a regularly funded organisation, I needed to employ someone to just do the data, mm -hmm. to just collect the data. Tiny, one person sort of dance company, but we had to produce mountains of data to justify the money that I get. Mm. Um, and then you've got the kind of, it's a ripe... It's, it's just a ripe house for mould. That's what it is. And this stuff has come through and it's wet mould and it's dry mould and it's just covered the house mm. because it's rotten inside and out. And we sidetracked you because you were talking about J.K. Rowling. That was about three years ago. That was about three years ago. Uh, but tell us more about that story because it was fascinating. So, so I, think, I, think it, I think it was her letter and I liked it. Not on my company account, Twitter account, but on my personal one. Mm -hmm. I liked it and retweeted it, put my phone down, went, put the kettle on, came back, put, picked up my phone. Already there was like, you know, the, I don't know what it's called, this massive kind of trail of messages of people from the arts world saying, is this the, is Rosie Kay a turf? Is Rosie Kay transphobic? Um, is this the official policy of Rosie Kedon's company? I was absolutely shocked. I was overwhelmed because I was kind of like, that's a brilliant letter. No one's going to argue with that. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> we were all so naive once, weren't we? we? Were, it just takes someone to stand up and take a stand and then everyone will go, Somebody's yeah. obviously not right-wing. Somebody's obviously on yes. the... All, all they have yes. to do is just stand up and beautifully articulate the point and everyone will everyone get it. Everyone will get it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God. And my husband's like, just delete it, just delete it. So I was like, just deleted it. And then I felt, I felt a bit dirty. Mm. I felt a bit bad. And I thought, oh, so I'm making work about exactly this. That's going to go on big stages. Okay. All right. Let's do it. But let's do it through the art. Let's do it through the art. Mm. So I got this solo out there. It was called Adult Female Dancer. Mm -hmm. I wanted it to be called Adult Human Female, and I was convinced by my management just to turn it down a little bit. Again, a bit annoying. Human is very offensive, you are right. It's hugely <laughs> offensive being female. It's hugely <laughs> offensive being, yeah, adult. That's, yeah, mm. yeah. yeah. 
So I did this solo show back in 21. Big venues, really big, like Edinburgh Festival Theatre, you know, Birmingham mm. Rep. And I got these amazing reviews, Observer, mm. The Guardian. And in this solo, adult, adult female dancer, there is a point where I say being a woman is not in my head. Being a woman is not in my head. <gasps> I thought someone would pick it up and out me. No, I just got like four or five star reviews. Mm. So I was like, I'm out. Fine. Let's just keep going. This is like the, this is the little line. It's dangerous, but I'll play it. So I didn't expect to be cancelled in my own home. I didn't. Mm. didn't expect that one. But then I also, a bit like saying about the house had gone mouldy. My board were not there for the art either. I don't know why they were there. I think there's a much bigger, important question about governance in the arts. Mm. And I'd like to do some work on that with lawyers to look at how we can protect. I mean, I... I knew nothing about intellectual property. I know everything now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, I made it. It's mine. Yeah. Uh-huh. No, no, it's more complicated than that. Yeah. Um, so I, I, think, I think we've got to kind of like upskill ourselves a little bit as, a, as, as artists, as a movement. And I want to be part of that to go, well, actually, maybe we need a little bit of governance, a little bit of legal advice. Um, we need to start going out and making everybody's lives as difficult as they've made ours. You made a point about how we, we the art got into bed with the corporates. And I remember, like, because I was very lefty when I was younger, as we all were, right? And I think that stage is very important, if I'm being honest. I think you mm-hmm. should be at that age. But yeah. I remember always feeling uncomfortable whenever I saw, like, the National Theatre sponsored by Deloitte or whatever else. And I can never articulate why. But if you're receiving your money from corporates, then how can you be truly rebellious as an artist? Because, because art became a brand. I mean, I made this show called MK Ultra that was looking at conspiracy theory. And I was sort of stunned. I was going, you know, to, to all the big theatres and dance events. And I was kind of like, kind of like doing the same thing over and over again. They've got yeah. like a brand, a look, a vibe, a feel audience is the same Mm. and then I was looking at pop videos and like some of it's completely bonkers and I was like well that's going quite avant-garde why have art stopped being avant-garde and yet mainstream pop or mainstream media we are talking like 10 years ago now Mm. is is more experimental and I thought there was something really failing already going on there yeah art is a brand you're selling a product they don't want you to do a different work every time they want the same work recycled so that they know what they're selling I think theatres are in a difficult state. I mean, they're in a really bad state at the moment with the cost of living crisis yeah. and heating. Mm. Um, and there, some of some of them, not all, there's some brilliant chief execs and directors out there and programmers, really brave, really get it, really see the future, mm. are impresarios. But some people are just scared and are going to just not rock the boat. They're they're the they're the captain of the of the bounty. You know, they don't want a mutiny on their hands. So. Because we've talked about a lot about what is wrong with the arts. How do we save the arts? Because the arts need saving. Because it is truly transformational. I used to teach drama in, you know, rough secondary schools up and down the country. I literally saw kids who couldn't access any type of education. The moment you put them on a stage, they flew. And they developed... It wasn't just about performing. It wasn't just about the fact that they loved drama and then they loved expressing themselves it gave them a dignity because they thought i can do this so how do we save the arts 
Okay, for first of all, just a little caveat is, is I think that learning departments within organisations need to have a good look at um, because that's a lot where this kind of, whether it be critical race theory or queer theory is coming through mm -hmm. because the art sits still sometimes over there, but it's the learning and participatory departments that have just been allowed to kind of not learn their trade properly, mm -hmm. not go out there with like a really pure, clear message about the arts. They're there for other reasons to push through ideology. What do I think we need to do in the arts? I think we need to speak. We need to do. Um, we need to be it. We need to be it. And, and, and make, like just keep making stuff. It, I do speak. I do want to speak out. But that only takes it so far. Mm -hmm. I've got to keep practicing mm -hmm. my art form and, and, and get it out there. And it's the only way to also stay real, still stay sane, mm -hmm. stay embedded, you know, grounded in that discipline, in that practice. And yeah, I want to do I want to do some works that might be seen as political this year. But I also want to go back to maybe some pure dance and have that freedom to do that. So I, I think we need to do, we need to speak, and we need to be, we need to live it, you know, we need to walk the walk. That's absolutely true. You know, uh, this is, uh, I, I've stopped doing stand-up since the pandemic, but we're working on some interesting things comedically and whatever. And I think that's, you, uh, you know, when you were talking before about we have to stand up and talk uh, to the, you know, uh, and advocate for our generation and you know, the, the point yeah, you're making. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. just thinking, I think the solution to this really is to prove that what we are doing and the content that whatever that content is, whether it's dance or comedy or online stuff yeah. or whatever, mm. is more popular. I, that's what you have to do. You have to get past the gatekeepers. That's really the problem in yes. the arts. It's the gatekeepers. Yes, exactly. Right? Because you've got people making decisions who are not making them purely on the basis of what the public want. Absolutely. They're making them on basis based on ideology. And we saw this with comedy where you get people being promoted because they are trans or because they are this or because they're that. Um, and uh, that is actually, if you can structurally find a way to get past that, very then easy to prove that that isn't what the people want. Because the shows that do that on TV, comedy-wise, they're all cancelled now. Yeah. Because no one watches them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So if you yeah. if you create stuff that people do watch, I think that's the answer. But do you know what? I think it's even more existential in the arts. I, I think there is an attack on live arts and live performance. Uh, not, not necessarily a direct... But it's audiences aren't returning those big buildings... I think, you know, and if you're putting on work that is ideologically seeped, I mean, I honestly think audiences hate it, but I also don't think they're necessarily striving to run out and see great new challenging avant-garde work either. Mm -hmm. And so that worries me. And, and, and I do agree that, you know, you know it should be meritocratic. It may be that we have to kind of except that those institutions are too far gone and set up our own mm. ways to do it, whether that be institutions or in new ways, holding on to our values. Um, but, but, I, but I, yeah, I worry just that we, we're now moving to a non-live world. And yet I also, you know, I, I believe sitting in that auditorium when it goes dark and something live is about to happen in front of me. Mm. You know, it's the best, most incredible experience 
in the world. I love it. And I think there's nothing, and I love being in the audience and I love performing. Mm. There's nothing else like it to communicate deep humanity. The Greeks were great at it. You know, we, we, there's a reason why we need to be and see and think about difficult subject matters portrayed by people in real time. It, it does something to us. It's so important. I remember my dad, bless him, who's been, had a tough life. He's been through his struggles. And it was in the early noughties, I took him to see... Um, Death of a Salesman, the Arthur Miller play. Yeah. And it was, I can't remember the name, who the guy played, Willie Lohman. He, he, Brian Dennehy. And I remember watching it and I was thinking, this is brilliant. And I looked over at my dad, who's never really gone to the theatre a lot. He doesn't really come from that world. He comes from a working class background. And because I was worried, I was like, is dad enjoying it? Yeah. And he was literally on his head of his seat like this. And it was... Because it's just such a powerful play. I mean, Miller's my favourite playwright. Yeah. And in particular, when you look at things like The Crucible, which is more relevant than ever. Mm. Yeah. And it's so important It's it, because it's primal. It's primal. It's about all of us being together around a metaphorical campfire telling a story, and we need that, and we can't forget it. I mean, I, I studied The Crucible at school, and I, I never thought I'd be living <laughs> through, you know, yeah. an equivalent of The Witch Hunts. It's just... Unbelievable. And I think that's, you know, something that really needs to be talked about more like the bullying, the yeah. bullying that this is just allowed the bullies to get into positions of power and to leverage it. And and it's hard to stand up to bullies. I get it. I get why people are scared. But the only way to stop a bully is to say that's that's it. That's enough. Mm. And Rosie, one of the things I want to ask you is why you decided to do that. And I, I know that it ties into some of the work you've made, actually. So talk to us about that. Mm. Um, so um, I'm just about to bring Five Soldiers back and going on tour from April. And what is Five Soldiers? So Five Soldiers, um, and the subtitle to it is The Body is the Front Line. Um, I was struck by how the body, the physical body, the human body, is still essential to warfare in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. No matter how the technological changes have changed warfare, it, it is the human body, and it's the human body that's trained to fight. Um, so... Quite a long time ago, I, I was doing a show in London and I suffered a really bad injury and I was told I'd never dance again. It would take me about a year to re re recover. And following the operation on my leg, um, I think the anaesthetic did something quite profound to my brain. Mm. Um, I dreamt I was lying on a desert battlefield and my leg had been blown off and I could see my leg over there. And my first thought, it was sort of bombs going off and flames and things. And my first thought was, oh shit. But then my second thought was quite weird. My second thought was like, well, is my body my soul? Like, where does my soul reside? Like, I've trained since I was three, as I said, mm. to like be a dancer. But like, you could chop my arms and legs off and I'd still want to dance. I would. And so I went downstairs and it was the Iraq war at the time. I put the telly on and I saw the faces of young men killed in Iraq. And, and I just thought, I wonder, I wonder if, how they train. I wonder mm. how you train, not just to risk injury like I do in dance, but to risk your life. And maybe it's not like the movies. Maybe they're not brainwashed. Maybe they really, really love their jobs. And that allows them to take such risks that they're willing to risk their lives. And, and what, what is that process? And I thought, well, there's war poets, war artists, um, there's war photographers, but the medium of their job is their bodies. Maybe I as a choreographer could go in. I'd never seen a work of dance that captured like the, the realness of it. Mm. Um, so it took me years, it took me ages, but I got an attachment to an infantry battalion. 
and I spent time with them, not realising, bit of an idiot, 10% females in the army, oh, it'll be 10% female. No, it's an all-male infantry battalion, Rosie. It's all male. <laughs> so I ended up on Dartmoor straight away, three days and nights in a big exercise. And I started off absolutely terrified, literally hiding behind people. But I had like full Bergen, helmet, body armour. And then I... Got it. I just started watching and realising, oh, I can see what's going on here. Like, that needs a formation now. I started to understand the sort of physical tactics of it. Got quite into it. So over several weeks, I went from being a terrified pacifist, I thought, bystander, to I had my own rifle. I was invited to join a, a battle against a rival battalion. And I was leaping out of windows, chucking grenades and... You, you, you do like you, you really rehearse war and they try and make it as realistic as possible. So there's like smoke and sounds and like they hate each other, these different battalions. Mm. You know, it's really full on. And um, I got it. I got that experience. I was like, OK, I just jumped out of a window. Never mind my, <laughs> my, my poor left leg. I, I just did it. I did that thing. I was like, yes, sir. Boom. Oh, my God. I'm flying out of a window. Um, I then spent time at Headley Court. Um, which is the rehabilitation centre. And by then, the guys I was with training with, they'd gone out to Afghanistan. And it was like one of those worst years, really bad years. And the Taliban changed tactics from firefight to um, improvised explosive devices, IEDs. So the guys that I was training with, they were now coming back with these complex traumas and getting their legs blown off, basically, mm. putting a finer point on it. And then some of the people that I actually knew, people that had become friends, were injured. So I went to Selly Oak, very near where I live in Birmingham, and I visited a friend who had lost both legs in Afghanistan as well as multiple other injuries. Um, but I went to Selly Oak, and it was like ward after ward after ward of young people with now disabling injuries. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, there's still that army banter going on and that vibe. And the government were not releasing the injury figures. They're putting a delay on it, but they were, we were getting the casualty figures. So there's like, remember Wooten Bassett? So there's this outpouring of grief mm. for the dead. But there's, there's going to be like hundreds of people that are going to be living lives for decades that the British public are not going to be aware of. And this before Help for Heroes and all these kind of charities. They, they were starting up around the same time. Anyway, long story short, I made a show about it. Uh, it was a one-hour show. And it did okay, but when I brought it back in 2015, it just went in the arts world, massive, like for, <laughs> not not mainstream, but massive, like five star awards, globally touring. I was touring it right up until COVID struck. I was touring the US with mm. this show, and it's like a one hour. You sit there, you think, oh god, dance and military, how crap is this going to be? But we've had like serving soldiers, a guy that had just come back from Afghanistan. He's sort of said, my god, that show. He said it's like doing a six-month tour in one hour. Hmm. And then he came back the next night with his wife and teenage kids. And I said, I want to show them because I can't explain how intense it is, but this show does. So we're bringing it back. Um, I'd think, love to see that. I yeah. think it's good to have a show that's about fighting because I need to remember that mm. discipline. Yeah. I think it's relevant. Af the Afghanistan evacuation last year brought everything back anyone if whether they're still serving or they're a veteran it was a shock all that sacrifice that people had made for for beliefs and values they believed in mm -hmm. didn't believe in all of it but they believed in the values of, of you know helping particularly women in afghanistan you know 
what's going on there. And then we've got Ukraine and this idea, you know, the left, the lefties, when I did Five Soldiers, like, oh, it's a bit right wing looking at the military. And I was like, but it's happening. It's really happening. We have a professional military that are at war. I think Ukraine has made people think, ah, you know, that's on Europe, that's on our land. And I think people are looking at, well, how do you defend your borders in a different way? So, yeah, I think Five Soldiers is still, sadly, very relevant. And it's, it sounds like brilliant art because it can express the things that sometimes even a person who has been through that experience can't express for themselves. So I really look forward to seeing it. Thank you. And it's about those contradictions. And that's what I love about dance is, that you, you know, one second you read one thing and the next minute you read another. And whether that's be around the body or emotions or like the role of soldiering, it, 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 it's lovely. And I don't, I don't try and have a political message with it. I try and be as authentic to those stories and experiences that I had. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to seeing it. I'll make sure to do that. It sounds great. Uh, Rosie, okay, before we let you go, we always ask our final question. But uh, before we ask that, and of course, questions for our locals only supporters, uh, tell everybody where to find you. Uh, so I have a website called uh, k-2co.com. Mm-hmm. I'm on Twitter, Rosie K, K2co. I'm on Instagram and I'm on Facebook. And yeah, just uh, find me and reach out. And go and see Five Soldiers. Um, so what is the one thing we're not talking about as a society that we really should be? I think we're not talking about joy enough, joy, pleasure, fun. I think talking about ideas about real joy, like joy that lights the soul, that lifts us up, that elevates us, beauty, like, like not not a superficial level of beauty, but, but, but a real like, gorgeousness of the world. These are deeply unfashionable things right now. And I think that does relate to this, 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 this melee that we're in, like being able to really have fun. If you can't let go and you're worried about, you know, censorship or fear or whatever, you can't have fun. You can't because it takes away all spontaneity. So I'm really interested in like, how do we elicit like feelings of joy? How do artists help that? I think it relates to your world, like joy and humor and beauty. Not no, a lot no. of beauty and comedy, <laughs> trust me. Beauty and, comedy. <laughs> and that's maybe not talking about these things, but then that's why I'm in dance and not, not, in, not, not, not in politics, I suppose. It's like, because these are things that are felt. These are things that are lived. These are things that are in our bodies. Mm-hmm. And we can't just keep like, you know, what is it? This 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 ape in a meat sack, meat, meat sack. You know, we can't keep this Descartian kind of like separation mm. from the mind and the body. We need to get into our bodies. We need to have fun and we need to have pleasure. Mm. That be eating or dancing or all those other experiences of of, of, of finding like fulfilment in ourselves, and and that's up to us. You know, we have to do that. I completely agree. And sometimes fun can be naughty as well, which is why I think the fun police come along because they're like, no, this must be fun in set parameters. And you're like, that's not fun. Exactly. (laughs) You just killed it. Yeah. Perfect. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And for everybody watching, we put out interviews on Wednesday and Sunday, 7 p.m. UK times. And Raw's always go out at 7 p.m. UK time as well. And for those of you who like your trigonometry, On the go, it's also available as a podcast.
Take care and see you soon, guys. We'll see you on Locals for the bonus questions that you've already submitted for us. Take care. What are the hopes for art as intended to create beauty, to entertain and to console, to transport and transcend? Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.